Clowns WNBA podcast. As always, I'm Eric Nemchak alongside Stephen Trinkwald. Uh, Stephen, we're going to be doing another game recap today, another classic WNBA game. Game one of the 2004 Western Conference Finals between the Seattle Storm and the Sacramento Monarchs. Yeah, this was one that uh, we, we recently ran a poll on Twitter. This game did not do very well, but I was really interested in it. I Overruled. Uh, seriously, there were a lot of kind of big name players throughout league history that I was not too familiar with. So, so this is definitely one that I had circled as soon as uh, I saw it was uh, available uh, where it's available. So, is is um, Lauren Jackson one of them? Lauren Jackson definitely one of them. You know, uh, Tisha Penichero, um, You know, a lot of you know Hall of Fame caliber players uh, that I was not too familiar with, and then some players that that we'll talk about a little bit later who I was familiar with, but definitely not in the roles they played at this point in their career. Yeah, so this is this is back in 2004, kind of when the league was still in its in its infancy, as as you have in your notes here. Um, the WNBA's eighth season, and up until this point, there were um, the Houston Comets had won over half of the titles in WNBA history. But this this I feel like was kind of the turning point for the league, where you started to see new superstars emerging, um, new new powerhouse, new, new like dynasties emerging. Um, what what do you, what do you kind of want to set the table with here? This was. Sue Bird's third season. This was Lauren Jackson's fourth season. You know, they were kind of really starting to get cooking. Lauren Jackson was coming off the MVP the, the prior season. To kind of go off your point, this was Diana Taurasi's rookie season. So, you know, definitely she won rookie of the year. Definitely some, some new star, uh, star talent. I guess just to kind of set the table a little bit from where these teams were, or, or should we talk about the teams themselves or, or kind of the differences in the actual game? Well, let's 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 keep it kind of a, a macro perspective uh, to start off. Like from what I have, I mean, I think it's important to mention that back then there were 13 teams. There there was an odd number of teams. Um, relative today, you know, Houston, Sacramento, Charlotte, they they no longer exist. Those franchises, unfortunately, and Detroit and San Antonio have both moved and rebranded. <laughs> and Detroit since several times, two 20-minute halves rather than four 10-minute quarters a shot clock of 30 seconds rather than 24 seconds that reset fully after an offensive rebound, no defensive three seconds. So no Brittany Griner rule. The three point line was considerably shorter. I think it was like two and a half feet closer to the basket than it is these days or something like that. And the games are broadcast on oxygen, not ESPN, which I think is, is, is pretty cool. But, um, and as far as the playoffs, like this, this was a playoff game. So there were three playoff rounds, the top four teams from each conference made it of three games apiece. So the first round, the conference finals rounds and the uh, WNBA finals were all three games apiece. And what's interesting, I actually didn't know this, the lower seed actually opened the series at home, whereas the higher seed got the second and third game at home. Yeah, how did you feel about that? This was an interesting one for me to learn. I don't know, like to me, isn't the point of being the higher seed having home court advantage? I, I don't know, it's weird. Yeah, it was not something that I am a, a fan of. Obviously, you know, there's there's really no easy way to do it with the three-game series, right? Because you don't want to just travel back-to-back-to-back games. I, I think maybe the perfect solution for a three-game series is honestly just give the home team all three games at home, particularly when, you know, you're, you're trying to limit travel, particularly when, you know, you're maybe flying commercial or, or something like that. I mean, if if they are doing three games or three-game series, and I'm glad – that's not really a thing at this point anymore in the league. Uh, I mean, what, what would your kind of ideal solution be there? You know, that, that all, hmm, I, I don't think that would fly. I, I don't think that would work having a, the entire series being hosted by one team just because of fairness. If, if I was a team, if I was a fan 
of the, of the opposing team, of the away team, I'd be kind of upset. Like, hey, my team made the playoffs, but I can't go to a game. Like, I, I wouldn't like that. Um, yeah, and I understand definitely the- a, tr- a huge driving force in, in playoff series, for, particularly for teams that are, I mean, not really so much in this current WNBA yeah. environment where, where the lower seats aren't really getting a home game anyway. But, you know, in, in sports or, or leagues where there are, you know, series in the first round, and, and those teams definitely want to kind of bring in some of that, that first round revenue. You want the teams. exposure. You want the exposure. Like, like if this was, I mean, it'd be pretty silly. Seattle was what the second best team in the league in, in, in 2004. Like if, what if they didn't have a home game at all throughout the playoffs? That'd be kind of, that'd be kind of weird, but it's, it's, it's a good dialogue to have. I think, um, you know, like when they switched the, the playoff format, when was it? Did it start in 2016? I, I believe it was when they, when they changed this, uh, this weird format of, of winner take all first and second rounds and, and then moved on to three games and then five games. I think a lot of people are upset that, you know, the, uh, that the third seed and fourth seed can get bounced so early, but like, in my opinion, like you earned the rest. I, I don't know. Is there, is there an ideal situation? Is there like an ideal rule or. I mean, it, it all kind of depends on like what you want from the playoffs. Like a, a lot of people kind of want those single elimination games. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I, I understand where people are like, you know, just raise the stakes, make them as exciting as possible. Even if you're maybe not, you know, breeding the best basketball from, from that as, as you possibly can. You know, I, I personally do think basketball like is a game of series. You know what I mean? Like I, mm-hmm. I like longer series. If, if all the rounds were, were five games, I would have no complaints there, but you know, that that's not the case. <laughs> and well, they, they, they can't do that though. Cause like, then you got to talk about shortening the regular season. Yeah, I sure. love how the WNBA finals is, is five games now. I think that's perfect. That's great. But like in an ideal world, like they'd all be seven games, like the NBA, like best of seven. And we'd just be slugging it out forever. But, uh, Time constraints and money constraints. Uh, we're not there yet. Yeah, maybe we'll so, get there one day. Let's hope. Fingers crossed, man. Fingers crossed. Okay, so some context heading into this game. The Storm went 20-14 and 14 in the regular season. They were second in the Western Conference. They defeated Katie Smith and the Minnesota Lynx 2-0 in the series before. As you said, uh, both Bird and Lauren Jackson were in their age 23 seasons, so still uh, spring chickens. Uh, Betty Lennox is in her age 27 season. She's kind of a standout name in this was a standout player for this uh, storm team throughout this playoff run. She had been through a pair of dispersal drafts. The Miami soul folded. She had, there's a dispersal draft. She went to Cleveland Then the Cleveland rockers folded and she, uh, she went to Seattle. So interesting twist there. Um, Meanwhile, the Sacramento Monarchs, they were 18 and 16 fourth place in the Western conference defeated Lisa Leslie and the LA sparks two games to one in the, in the uh, prior series. Yolanda Griffith, as you said, um, she was, she was kind of on the tail end of her career at this point. You know, she played several more seasons after this, but she was 34 years old. She had just come to the WNBA in 1999 after the ABL, the American Basketball League, folded. So that's kind of an interesting perspective here. Like the first real generation of WNBA stars, they're all coming in at different points in their careers, right? Because like you think about the Houston Comets, you have Cheryl Swoops, who's one of the most decorated collegiate players ever, Tina Thompson, and then Cynthia Cooper, who was – pretty much the greatest player in the WNBA for her first four seasons. And she was like in her mid thirties. So they're, they're all kind of like a melting pot of, of, of talent, you know, players who have been playing professionally for several years versus players who were just coming out of college or who had just been drafted internationally like Jackson. But this was kind of the point in the league history where you were getting those, those stars coming in consistently, but I digress. Um, and then players no, that, like that's Carol- a great point, you know, yeah. to kind of lay out that not all these players 
uh, no matter kind of where they are from like a, a star talent perspective. Yolanda Griffith, uh, as you had mentioned, she she came in her first, you know, quote unquote, rookie season. That was her age 29 season. She wins the MVP and that's the league's third year. So just to kind of, you know, mirror what you were saying, the influx of, of talent, it's all making its way to the league, but but kind of at different points in all these star players are at different points in their career. It's really interesting. And and then to speak, you mentioned earlier about some uh, names that would become household names as the league developed. Uh, Carol Lawson and Rebecca Brunson playing for Sacramento. They were just 23 and 22 years old, respectively, in this game. So it was pretty cool to see, uh, you know, players who are considered WNBA legends now kind of be coming off the bench and having lesser roles. I mean, Lawson did have a pretty big role in this game, but, you know, just seeing where they started and, and how things all began for them. And, of course, I have to mention Ticha Penichero, uh, one of the greatest point guards of all time in women's basketball. They said on the broadcast she had led the league in assists for six consecutive seasons prior to 2004. And you look at the type of player that Ticha Penichero is, um, not looking to score, like, ever, but she is just, they said she's a wizard with the basketball. Past first point guard. And yeah, for second sure. <laughs> and and just to kind of make a quick note, like I thought David Locke and Rebecca Lobo were were great on, yeah. on the game. Uh, you know, David Locke referenced blocks per forty minutes in two thousand four. Uh, you know, uh, to kind of give some context for like a, a bench player. Um, so so maybe a little bit ahead of their time, I think, in uh, some ways. Um, to kind of go off a little bit more of the the team context, uh, Seattle this season they were the number one offense in the league. Uh, they were third in defense and, you know, they were second in the Western Conference, uh, but they were the number one team overall in net rating this season. And for Sacramento, this was, you know, the year before they would end up winning the title in 2005. They were third in offense uh, at 97.9 points per 100 possessions. Just kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of, you know, the offensive environment we were looking at in 2004 that that would have been like 11 this this season behind every team except for of course the, the liberty uh and then defensively they were fourth in defense in 2004 and then fourth overall in that rating so so two of the you know this is a, a second round playoff game but definitely two of the top four teams in the league i want to get your opinion on this uh the average offensive rating in 2004 was 97.2 points per 100 possessions uh this past season in 20, uh, 2020 it's 104.4 points per 100 possessions um and the Liberty were the only team not to crack one point per hundred possessions. So where is all that coming from these days? Is it just the amount of three pointers being taken? Cause there were not many threes shot in this game, even by shooters who you consider to be really good. Yeah. I mean, threes definitely have something to do with it. I think, you know, last season was a little bit less of an offensive environment 2019. And I think a lot of that had to do with early on. This is something that you talk about a lot or, or have talked about, I should say, you know, the, the whistle just wasn't there for a lot of yeah. offensive players kind of used to getting that whistle. So you know, I think maybe 2019 is, is maybe more of the offensive anomaly than, than 2020 is. But, you know, overall, there's, there's just a lot of really good players. I mean, I, I don't know the landscape of 2004 as well as I do 2020, but there's definitely more, more spacing. You know, there's, there was usually, you know, six players inside the three-point line pretty much at all times, at least in, in this game that we were watching. So yeah. even if you're not shooting and making threes, the the space that you have to work with is obviously just a, a lot more beneficial for the offensive player. Which for players, you know, like Lauren Jackson or Yolanda Griffith who operate primarily down low. I mean, Jackson obviously can operate anywhere she wants, but um, with, with so many physical players and, and, and really talented uh, front court players, that's not really, there's some, there could be some ugly basketball being played at times, but this is a really good game. One thing before we get started that I really wanted to point out, 
average pace in the league back in 2004, 68.2 points per 100 possessions. Last year, 79.2. That's 11 possessions more. Where is that coming from? Well, it's, it's coming from a few different places, right? The 30-second shot clock is definitely – Yes. Um, you know, and then not just only the shot clock, but also the, the offensive rebounding resetting to 14 rather than going all the way to 30. I mean, that's such a huge difference. You know, it's pretty much cutting it in half, obviously. So, so those two things are, are obviously like the low-hanging fruit you could point to. Yeah, I'm not really sure what else to kind of credit there, but, but that uh, the 30-second shot clock, I think, at times in this game was, was definitely something you um, – it was noticeable, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, it, it, it helps. You're obviously going to get more possessions when you have a shorter shot clock and the offensive rebound, you know, it, it doesn't reset all the way after the shot clock or after an offensive rebound. But uh, that's another thing. I mean, it's, it's just wild to see how far the WNBA has come, both in terms of, you know, talent and schematics and tactics, like coaching tactics. Like we've seen the NBA really take off in the past, I don't know, would you say seven, eight years as, yeah, as far as, you know. That. Something like that. Um, can, can I just make a quick point just to kind of build on like the increased pace? Yeah. Um, at this point in the kind of the league in, in 2004, uh, backcourt violations didn't occur until 10 seconds. They were 10 second violations rather than eight seconds. So you were able to kind of take your time a little bit more getting it across the half court line. I'm not sure how much that really played into things. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's 10 something. Seconds. Yeah, for sure. Something. Okay. Um, you want to kind of get into this? Cause uh, this is a really good game. Yeah, for sure. Let's, let's do it. Um, I'm not sure where, where we want to start here, but for me, you know, the, what really jumped out early in particular was like kind of how thing, like how shaky things were looking for Seattle, their first kind of, let's say, half dozen possessions down the floor, you know, where they very obviously wanted to kind of get it into the post with Lauren Jackson, but Sacramento, as the, the broadcast mentioned quite a few times, like they were, they were fronting the post and bringing the help over from the weak side. And, you know, Seattle, at least in those first couple of minutes, made a, a couple like pretty ugly turnovers just on post entry passes and they would have a few more over the course of the game. It's, it's interesting that Seattle got off to such a poor start with that because like, I, I don't know. Cause it, as most of the first half, it's going to be weird. I'm going to get confused saying like first half, first quarter, but uh, the, the Seattle did open up like a pretty sizable lead as the first half went on, as they kind of settled down and, you know, they kept saying, Oh, the ball reversals on point. They're making these, these uh, off ball cuts. Um, was it like uh, misdirections? That's the word I'm looking for. Misdirections. And it, it seemed like they were just able to slow down, be more patient. But one thing I noticed almost immediately is that Sue Bird was playing off the ball a lot more than we're used to seeing her play these days. At least it seemed to me. Yeah, particularly when they – when, I mean, Betty Lennox was definitely handling the ball a lot in, in kind of half-court situations. But even in the full court when Lennox was out of the game, they were having uh, Tully Bevilacqua kind of run the point and Sue Bird was – was more so the the off ball player and Sacramento they were they were kind of playing that that weak side help in the post no matter who was off the ball on the weak side and that led to some pretty open three point attempts by Sue Bird. Uh, she hit one on like Seattle's third possession of the game and it was funny hearing David Locke say that Bird added that to her game this year, <laughs> uh, making like you know a thirty five percent jump from two thousand three to to forty three percent in in two thousand four. You know Bird in, in kind of my uh, mind is you know a pretty premier shooter so to kind of ever, yeah, yeah right right and, and a very reliable one so to kind of hear uh you know the the television analysts say you know it, it's going to be dangerous if she can add that to her game is, is some very funny kind of historical context 
I wonder who we're going to be saying that about, you know, you know, like this, your next season, and we're going to look forward in 10 years. You'd be like, man, can you remember when she couldn't shoot? I'm not sure if Seward ever, ever couldn't shoot, but it's, it is interesting to say that. Um, so yeah, so like Subert and Betty Lennox kind of almost like a combo guard uh, uh, pairing in the backcourt there, where Sacramento played things a lot more straight up, I would say, a lot more traditional. Their defense was, it seemed like Sacramento was much more of a defense first team that really wanted to get out in transition. Yeah, for sure. And the synergy numbers, uh, unfortunately, don't go back this far, but the television team had made note of, uh, I think it was David Locke that said this, that, you know, Sacramento doesn't really want to be like a half court team. So I was kind of um, interested to see like what they were doing in terms of their, their transition percentage. And we don't really have those numbers available, but mm. they did lead the league in opponent turnover percentage, you know, for whatever that's worth. And obviously not all of those are, are live ball turnovers, but you definitely saw that early in the game and, you know, Sacramento forcing Seattle into some, some pretty bad turnovers and whenever they could, uh, getting out and running it and that led to some pretty pretty easy opportunities but you know Seattle uh, as the game went on particularly in you know the mid to late first half I would say you know they were just pushing everything yeah yeah they were um, they were getting open looks in transition uh, and they were really they were really pushing the ball down Sacramento so I, I thought in the first half like this is almost a tale of two halves but Seattle really got off strong what was their largest lead like 12 points, 14 points, something like that. Yeah, they were definitely up 14 at one point. It was pretty significant there. And, and that's because I felt like they were controlling the pace on both ends of the floor. You can say that, like, hey, Sacramento wants to run, but that's because they, may, they might not be as good of a half-court team as they are in the transition. But I think Seattle seemed like a team that could function both ways. And for Seattle offensively, like, things were pretty bogged down, I would say, for the first couple minutes. And then I thought things really opened up when Lauren Jackson went from wanting to play – mostly inside to, you know, she got her first basket of the game on like a a pick and pop three. Yeah. And I think that's when kind of things really opened up a little bit more for Seattle. You know, it's one of the reasons it's it's not really a secret. Lauren Jackson is is the reason why I started watching the WNBA. In my mind, she's the greatest ever. Uh, She was the original unicorn forward. She was the original player who was six foot five, who could play both inside and out. And like when the three point line is this far in, she was making some of these three-pointers look like layups. Oh, they were so smooth. I mean, so wh- whenever the kind of conversation gets floated about on Twitter, you know, the greatest of all time, uh, you're always one to bring up Lauren Jackson. What, yeah. what did you think of her game today? Or not today, but what today. you watched it today. Uh, on this day, uh, 16 years ago, no. Um, incredible. Incredible. I mean, I mean, she just made it look – she makes it look so easy from basically anywhere on the court. I mean, they, they – they really deed up on her in the second half more often than, than not. You know, they, we can talk about this later, but the Monarchs had some pretty darn good defensive players and, and really physical forwards. But like in, early in this first half, I mean, LG was getting pretty much whatever she wanted, both inside and outside. Um, she was dominant on the glass, but some of these plays they were running for her and like to, to get her moving without the basketball, it, it, just, it just blows my mind how smooth she made the game look. You know, I mean, she was obviously a, a, still a young player at this point in her career, but she'd already won an MVP in the WNBA. She was really just getting started. Um, just the ability to, I think we look back on Lauren Jackson as a player who is a post player who shot threes, but that almost does a disservice to her overall game, in my opinion, because in this game, she was playing outside almost more than she was inside Yeah, and making meant- it look really easy. You, you mentioned kind of what they were sort of running for her, like, 
uh, she had that that first pick and pop three. She hit another one on the opposite side in like semi transition after you know at first kind of setting up in the middle of the floor in front of the rim and then like the the fronting of the post just kind of made that too hard. So she just went out to the um, the weak side three point line and and they found her for a three. And then the one that for me was just like oh my god, it was there was like uh, eight minutes remaining in the first half, I should say, not remaining in the game. Was it the you out know, of bounds play? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the sideline out of bounds where Sue Bird kind of sets the off-ball screen on the weak side for Lauren Jackson to flare out behind the arc. And I'm just like, goodness gracious, like, this is who Lauren Jackson was? Yes, it was. It was it, it, the tallest player on the court who could do basically anything. I mean, that's remarkable play. I, I really, you know, I, I hate to go off on a tangent here, but I really, really wish she could she could have stayed healthy past like her age 30 or 31 season because all this she accomplished as a 20 something year old in the WWE was just amazing. But yeah. Um, but Sacramento. Well, hold on. Let, let, let's just give Lauren Jackson's line uh, quickly. Right. She, she was uh, 31 points on 27 shooting possessions, 13 rebounds, six of them offensive. You know, I think uh, looking at her numbers a little bit, she was like a good offensive rebounder, but this was a pretty dominant offensive rebounding performance for her. She had uh, a couple of assists, um, a, a steal. Nine for uh, nine on free throws. Nine for nine on free yeah. And she started the – she was like five for five in the first half, was absolutely dominant in the first half, cooled off uh, a little bit as the game went on. But, I mean, she was, she was hitting everything early for sure. It does remind you of a lot of, a lot of these, uh, these do-all forwards from today's game, right? Yeah, for sure. And her, her shot from behind the arc just looked so good. The free throws, like they were never in doubt. You know what I mean? It was just one of those. So pure, um, yeah. Uh, what what did you think of her game defensively? Defensively, I mean, I think they made, I think she made it help make it tough on Sacramento early. Like we said, Sacramento had had a, a hard time getting involved um, in the half court early. Like at this point, I think Yolanda Griffith, like I said, was on the tail end of her career. But I mean, Lauren Jackson, she's just at this point in her career, she still had the really great lateral movement, the ability to both to basically do anything you want schematically. Um, she could switch, she could play the pick and roll in several different ways. Um, she also won Defensive Player of the Year. I believe that was in 2007, something like that. But I don't know. I mean, it looked pretty flawless to me, honestly. Am yeah. I being too much of a homer there? Or? Maybe. Uh, I would say just a little bit. But, I mean, so, so Tangela Smith is the, the big player for Sacramento in this game, uh, a player that we, had, we, we talked about a, a little bit in that 2009 WNBA Finals game one between the Mercury and – uh, the fever and like this is not the same player that played no, for that, that Mercury team. Like, um, I had no idea that she was a go-to player. You know, with with her time in in Phoenix, she was you know just kind of like a uh, a complimentary spot-up shooter. Uh, she was you know Sacramento's go-to post player in this game, even more so than Yolanda Griffith, and and she led this team, this Sacramento team, for the season in usage. So she was definitely a big part of what they wanted to do. Um, David Locke and, and Rebecca Lobo had mentioned on the broadcast about how integral she was in, in the upset of Los Angeles. So, you know, having only known Tangela Smith really from watching, uh, we, we watched game one of that 2009 finals game for the show. I, I watched a couple other ones just, you know, for fun. So my thought of her was like a career complimentary player. And I couldn't have been more wrong because she, she was a monster in this game. Well, I mean, I need to retract what I said a little bit. I mean, she was not playing scared at all against Lauren Jackson. And if you're going to beat the LA Sparks in this era, you need to have someone to throw at Lisa Leslie as well. So I, I assume that's correct. You know, when Tangela Smith being integral to beating the LA Sparks, but yeah, um, 24 points, two steals, four block shots. I think a few of them were on Jackson. Um, 
I'm not sure how, how tall was Tangela Smith because it almost seemed like she played taller than she actually was. Yeah, they were referencing her as six four. Um, but oh, okay. David Locke was mentioning quite a few times about her wingspan. You know, really long arms. So hard it, to find that kind of stuff. And but. you're right. Like it, it, it is kind of interesting to see her playing five years later than this, and she's just like a stretch five for a Phoenix Mercury team that is so offensive minded and doesn't really play any sort of defense. Whereas five years prior to that. Here she is, like the, one of the fulcrums of a really, really strong defensive-minded team. Yeah, for sure. So, said, and led the team in usage, led the t- uh, team in shots. She took 18 shots in this game. Yeah, and got to the free throw line eight times as well. And, yep, yep. you know, their their offense for huge stretches of this game was just throwing it to Tangela Smith on the block and just watching her do something with it, you know what I mean? So with about 11 minutes to go in the, in the, in the first half, um, the Storm were up six, 22 to 16. Super goes out of the game. One thing that hasn't changed is Super playing with a broken nose. I, I mean, I think this is the first, uh, the first time in the playoffs where Bird had the uh, was rocking the face mask. But Seattle was able to like sustain this trip with Bird out of, or off the off the court with Betty Lennox and with Lauren Jackson. Um, what did you really see towards the end of the first half here? Like Seattle was able to maintain their lead. Yeah. So there were some turnovers by Sacramento that kind of made it easy for Seattle. Um, Betty Lennox offensively, like I, I thought she was awesome in the first half on both ends, but mm-hmm. uh, particularly during this kind of stretch, you know, she hits like a, a little mid-range uh, pick and roll jump shot. Uh, defensively, I thought she was really great. And uh, Tully Bevilacqua, like you didn't really miss too much. You know, this was not Sue Bird's best game. She, she had a pretty kind of miserable game from the floor, to be honest. And, you know, later on in the game, I think they stuck with Bevilacqua maybe a little bit too long over Betty Lennox, which we can maybe get to, but... You know, for Seattle, it was just, uh, they, they were, you know, Sacramento just couldn't really do anything in the half court offensively at this point in the game. And, and Seattle was getting some early runouts because of that. Now, things kind of started to change in the second half, right? Um, Sacramento actually, they stole the tip off because the half began with a tip back then in the backcourt and actually, and actually got an easy layup to cut the bleed to uh, nine points. Um, what kind of change for Sacramento in that second half? Were they doing anything different schematically or were they just giving more effort, were they efforting harder on, on defense and on, on the glass? Well, I thought bringing in Kara Lawson and Rebecca Brunson like early in the half really helped kind of keep the intensity up for Sacramento. You know, they, they just seem to be like rotating a little bit more crisply defensively. The court off opened up more offensively for Sacramento with Lawson in there mm-hmm. instead of um, Edna Campbell. You know, Lawson was pretty much their their only threat at all behind the arc she was really the only one doing any kind of scoring off the dribble from the perimeter you know she only finished the game with 12 points on 12 shot attempts but she had some some really really tough shots uh that she had hit she hit two of their three threes for the game again not really a a huge three-point team and it was just kind of a, a miserable game for for tisha so uh what lawson was able to do as kind of their secondary creator offensively and then Rebecca Brunson as well. You know, she definitely, you know, missed some some easy ones around the rim, but her four offensive rebounds in 16 yeah. minutes, I mean, is that not Rebecca Brunson? Like? That's Rebecca Brunson. And, you know, it's interesting. Rebecca Brunson has credited uh, Yolanda Griffith as one of her her big mentors. And in, in a way, I mean, that's – they, they kind of – I don't want to say compliment. What, what, how do I want to put this? Um, Griffith kind of transferred her powers over to Rebecca Brunson as far as the offensive rebounding is concerned. And Brunson now regarded as one of the greatest rebounders of, in WNBA history. But I mean, at this point they were, it's so interesting to see players who like 
we regard as, you know, oh, veteran presence, you know, smart players are not going to kill you athletically, but they're going to make the right play. Like, Kara Lawson was a real spark plug. I mean, the way she was, like, defending on ball, you know, when her and uh, Penichero, like, shared the floor, uh, Sacramento started to press a little bit more. And, yeah. and it wasn't Penichero playing that defense. It was Kara Lawson. And, you know, they didn't really create any turnovers that way necessarily, but just the way they were able to kind of get, you know, with Sue Bird out of the game, you know, kind of force uh, Tully Bevilacqua into a little bit more uncomfortable situation. Uh, I, I was really impressed with just kind of what Lawson brought to to this game. And, um, you know, she was a, a little bit more of uh, kind of a focal point as the game closed than Brunson, who was, you know, in her rookie season at this point and mm-hmm. would transition into the team's starting uh, power forward in, in the following season, you know, when they did win the championship. But those two players I thought were, uh, I, I think maybe Lawson a little bit more than Brunson in, in all fairness, but um, that really kind of made a big difference to me. I, I agree with that. I, I do remember specifically the announcers picking out like, hey, Super is out of the game and now they're full court pressing. Probably not a coincidence. Uh, and that's something I feel like, you know, they kind of had to do. Maybe they didn't have to do it, but it was a wise, it was a wise gamble because early in that first half, we saw Seattle was just picking apart this Sacramento man defense, but with the constant ball reversals and being very patient and, and finding the open shooter or what have you. And they really didn't get that many clean looks from at least beyond the arc in the second half. No, things really bogged down for, for Seattle in the second half. You know, I thought the, the spacing was just a little bit worse. Um, you know, they, they played with Jackson alongside another center pretty much at, at all times as to be expected. And, you know, they evened up, even opened up the overtime uh, with Jackson. Playing uh, a three. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. with two bigs, um, which, you know, is funny. Um, well, well, we'll get to that later. But so uh, I, w- I did mention that um, Tisha Panichero, like, she, she had a pretty rough game. Uh, I just wanted to kind of give her a line quickly. She was 0 for 2 from the field, finished the game with two points. She did have nine assists, five turnovers, and five fouls. And she picked up, like, two of those fouls you know, as that kind of weak side defender coming to help over on those post fronts. And then another two, just like they were offensive fouls. Uh, she yeah. kind of threw herself in, into the defender a couple of times. So, so not a, a great game for, for Tisha, but obviously uh, it, it didn't really matter in the end. But um, honestly, dude, I, I think that's, this is a very Tisha Panachero line. I mean, like didn't look to score at all. Still had nine assists somehow. Maybe took a couple of risks because of basketball, but also four steals. Yeah, sure. And obviously, like, you know, those she had the one kind of like live ball turnover that that was pretty bad where it just kind of fell out of her hand. But obviously, you know, five turnovers and and two of them are offensive fouls. So it's not like she was just kind of throwing it all over the court. And I also need to point out before we forget, um, Seattle, uh, nine defensive plays made. So nine stocks. Uh, Sacramento, 22 stocks, 12 steals and 10 blocks. That's that that kind of embodies what they wanted to do. Right. Yeah. And they were uh, particularly like in the second half defending the rim, like around the rim, they were, they were just all over the place. Absolutely. Just like throwing some of the uh, storm front court players shots, like right back in there. You know, a lot of them kind of ended up still with as, as storm ball, but it, it was, it was awesome to see. Uh, the one box. Smith had on, on Jackson, she like spiked that ball. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was pretty crazy. It was a, uh, uh, you know, I thought Tandro Smith as a, a playmaking defender had a really great game. Obviously, you know, she couldn't stop Lauren Jackson from, kind of being efficient overall but just you know the way she was able to kind of get the blocks and steals was, was pretty impressive and you have 
like you have, like, I know Yolanda Griffith did not have a, an enormous offensive impact on this game or one that you'd expect to see from like a hall of fame player, but she was still like the fulcrum of this Sacramento defense. And you could really see like how this player was once a premier defensive player in the league. Well, I'm glad you brought up her offensive game. I was like a little surprised with how kind of uninvolved she was for Sacramento's offense, you know, not, really knowing all that much about her game outside of that she, you know, was, is, is an MVP in her first season and then that she kind of came into the league kind of later in her basketball life. Uh, but so much of kind of what she was able to do was, you know, outside of a couple post plays here and there. And then obviously that huge pick and roll finish at the yeah. end of the game where she scored over Lauren Jackson to, to pretty much tie the game and send it into overtime. But so much of the rest of her offensive involvement was just kind of, you know, hustle plays, you know, offensive rebounds, just picking up a loose ball and being in the right place at the right time. She really didn't get a ton going between like, in, in kind of like the meat of this game, you know, she had like a nice kind of running hook in overtime and, and stuff like that. But over the course of, you know, the, the first 40, she, she wasn't really all that involved in what they were doing. I think it's difficult. Like when you're, when you have a center that will, that is mostly, mostly paint bound, as you like to say, starting alongside another post player who is at this point in her career paint bound, you know, Smith did not attempt any three pointers. Um, and then an, an, a backcourt that really doesn't want to shoot either, except for unless Kara Lawson is, the, is in the game. Like you said, I said, the, the spacing just isn't really there for somebody to be making plays in the paint very consistently. But as far as the hustle plays are concerned, I mean, this is, it's pretty cool. Cause that's, this is your, your 34 year old superstar who is still setting the example you know, on the offensive glass and, and going after loose balls. I'm not the biggest, uh, I'm not the biggest guy in, in, in pointing out, oh, they beat, they beat her to every loose ball or winning the 50-50 balls because I'm, I don't know, sometimes I think that's overstated. But in this case, I think it really does embody what the Sacramento team was all about. Um, beyond, you know, Penichero's wizardry with the basketball. I mean, they had a front court led by Griffith that was just more physical than the other teams. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I definitely think that, over the course of this game in particular, and I think this kind of goes, you know, both ways, like th this is the case for both teams, but I thought Sacramento's size really kind of deterred Seattle from yeah. um, getting really anything inside from uh, their, their perimeter players in the half court. Um, their, um, you know, their, their starting center didn't really do anything near the basket outside of um, like a, a dump off. I think once or twice um, she was mostly kind of uh bound to you know kind of mid-range jump shots so um i thought sacramento the, the way they were able to kind of present their size was definitely like had an effect on seattle in this game it really it really wore on them you know and and what do you think was really like the i know you said bringing in brunson and lawson was like a real turning point here but this game got close it, it didn't really seem like seattle had any momentum at all in the second half like sacramento was just kind of slowly reeling them in uh fueled by by Kara lawson with these really tough jump shots yeah, I mean, that one jump shot. So first, I, I want to say, like, like Tangela Smith had 10 points in the first, like, nine minutes of the second half. Yeah. She was hitting, you know, she wasn't hitting threes, but she was hitting, you know, 15-footers, 17-footers. She did have a couple huge blocks. She, I, I, her impact on this game really cannot be kind of overstated to me. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say was just that Kara Lawson, she just hit, like, an impossible you know, pivot one way, pivot the other way, and just kind of like throw up a, a, a kind of fade away at the free throw line, which, you know, 
probably eight times out of 10 shooting that in, in a professional basketball game that covered, like probably isn't going to go in, but yeah. it was so impressive. And, and that one did go in. And um, obviously, you know, there was a lot more in the game that, that happened that, that could have swung things, but just that, that one particular shot, I was like, this is probably their night. Well, one thing regarding these, these tough shots and these, these mid range jumpers is it, it really struck me as like one of the first things I thought, you know, how, how different would these players look in a more modern coaching scheme or a more uh, contemporary basketball scheme? Because this is, this was a really, really high level basketball game, but it just seemed like the way the league was running back then, or, or the way basketball was kind of being played back then, if you will, that defense and, you know, pristine offensive execution were what eventually won this game rather than, you know, like say the, the mystics for a, of a couple of years ago, like they're just going to keep bombing threes until, until you, you, until like you can't stop until you stop shooting with them. So what, what do you think about that? Yeah, for me, I think, you know, Seattle was, and maybe this is just like recency bias and, and I know Sue bird and, and they have, you know, a big that shoots threes in this game, but I, I thought Seattle was like a little bit more modern than yeah. Sacramento just because, you know, they did have Lauren Jackson who was able to, I guess, space out the floor. Um, you know, Sue Bird was uh, obviously much more kind of three-point friendly than than Tisha Panichero. Um, You know, obviously they, they didn't really play like small or, or anything at all, but they were pretty kind of versatile in sort of who they were having their their post players guard uh, and stuff like that. And, and Sacramento was just like a kind of like blueprint of a mid-2000s basketball team, you know? Like they mean? were running play after play specifically for two-point jumpers. Yeah, that's true. Like uh, post ups. Yeah, let's try to get it from from 18 feet to bring it into 14 feet, and and we'll try to score from there, kind of. Uh, and just to kind of uh, give some more context on on the loss and shot, I couldn't find it before, but uh, Lauren Jackson scores on like an offensive rebound to put them up 62-58 with about two and a half minutes left, and and Lawson comes back down the following possession and gets them back within two on that sort of uh, impossible turnaround that that I'd referenced. But one other thing that I think really kind of hurt Seattle late in this game. They got into the penalty pretty quickly and then got Sacramento on the free throw line on a lot of like off ball fouls. You know, it wasn't really anything that Sacramento was necessarily doing to get, you know, shooting fouls. It was more kind of off ball fouls and they got probably six free throws that way as well. That's interesting you bring that up because I thought the whistle was, was pretty loose. Like I thought there were a lot of, a lot of plays where they were just letting them play. Oh yeah. I mean, it was definitely a very physical game and a lot more could have been called, but uh, Seattle did kind of give some some easy ones up just by getting in the penalty. So okay, so, so what, what kind of happened at the end of this game here? Because there were a few key uh, a few key possessions by both teams. You know, they could have gone either way. Like this yeah. game did go into overtime, but break down the end of this game for us or the end of the regulation. Yeah. So um, so Sue Bird hits a three with what a minute fifty left to to go in the game, and there's kind of not a, a ton of scoring from there. Sacramento's second to last possession of, of the overtime, I mean, of the regulation is that Yolanda Griffin pick and roll where she kind of finishes a, a, just a beautiful finger roll right in front of the restricted area. Uh, although I don't think it was the restricted area in the WNBA, but it was there for uh, the Sacramento Kings. And that, that ties the game. Sue Bird, the following possession, there's about 23 seconds left. It, it would have put them ahead and she kind of misses, you know, a pretty makeable, I think it was, what, what would you say? Maybe like 10 foot jumper, Something it, like that, maybe yeah. even closer. It might've been like an eight foot jumper, but I mean, it was right there. And, and it's kind of funny to see like Sue Bird miss that shot, you know, where as today, it probably would be like overanalyzed <laughs> to death and we, we would all be miserable kind of hearing about it over and yeah. over again. But obviously she's 
you know, renowned, I think, at this point in her career as a, as a pretty clutch player, but uh, definitely missed that one that, that could have won it for them. And then Kara Lawson to end the regulation misses a kind of tough running mid-range jumper that just kind of goes back iron. And then we go to OT, 65-65. And then once we get into OT, like, it's, it's so funny. This is what I was going to say before. It, like, st- starts off so hot. And, and we're at 72-72 before you know it. And then for, you know, about two minutes and 44 seconds, nobody scores. Okay, this is the point where the commentary was really starting to stick out for me. Like, David Locke owned this overtime. Like, yeah, it was, every, it was every great. single this basket, he was team. going crazy. He was yeah. going crazy. I really enjoyed it. Um, but but back, to, back to what you were saying. Like, um, like Bird, was, Bird was scoring from the mid-range in OT. Uh, Griffin had the running hook. Um, Tangela Smith made another nice turnaround shot. And then it just kind of stalled. Yeah, that shot from Tangela Smith to tie it back up at 72-72 at after – bird hit that shot on the baseline where she kind of held her arm up a little you know she splashed one i love in basketball yeah exactly <laughs> exactly uh and, and tangela smith just splashes an impossible shot o- over uh i want to say it was lauren jackson but, but it might i know at some point late in the in the overtime seattle switched lj off tangela smith because yeah. she was kind of getting whatever she wanted and switched her on to yolanda griffith well seattle also had this this weird three big lineup in overtime yeah, that's right. So, so they had their their back or uh, their front court, excuse me, of Lauren Jackson and Camelia Vadichkaba. Uh, sorry if I mispronounced that, but I'm pretty sure I got that right. As well as their their first big off the bench, Janelle Burse, um, who had some moments in this game, but was also pretty foul prone. Yeah. Um, you know, four personal fouls in, in 18 minutes because throughout the game, really, Seattle's normal small forward. Cherie Sam was just absolutely getting dominated in the paint by Sacramento's small forward who had 13 points on 10 shooting possessions and, and ended up actually hitting the game winner in this game as well. But, but she was just kind of, you know, putting Sam in the weight room for a lot of this game. You know, Demaya Walker, that's, this is, this is another player who I don't really remember much of. I think when I first started watching the WNBA, she only had like one or two years left, but I mean, looking at the box score, she she made her impact on this game. Thirteen points, five blocked shots from the small forward position, and that last that last shot did that, did that seem like a set play to you? Because it, it seemed like a pretty tough shot. Yeah, so she kind of starts out in the middle of the floor and just kind of makes her way to the right side. Goes with a little kind of like uh, to put it in modern terms, like almost like a Dewana Bonner step through, and it, it took. Uh, I think she let that shot go with about a minute left in the game and it took the rest of the the final yeah, minute to finally fall through. But yeah, I'm not sure if that was like a, a set play or, or what, but you know, she hadn't been too involved really in the overtime. And you, I was kind of thinking that the the play was going to go for, you know, Tangela Smith who had been their kind of go-to player down the stretch uh, and really kind of kept them in it for a lot of the overtime and, and obviously the course of regulation as well. But yeah. And, and right before that, just to kind of give some context, Lauren Jackson kind of, uh, she, she turns the ball over. She gets a poke from behind on like a pump fake and drive. And Tisha Panachero makes the play, as you had mentioned before, uh, her, her defensive playmaking was all over the place. And um, yeah, definitely one that, you know, obviously doesn't kill Seattle because they come back and win the championship uh, in, in the season. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after this game, she must have been like beating herself up, I'm sure. There's so many opportunities for Seattle to have won this game. But I mean, also a lot of opportunities for Sacramento to have won this game in regulation, right? So yeah, this was, this was an amazing basketball game, despite, you know, I'm bragging on, you know, the kind of antiquated style of basketball that both of these teams were playing with. And even with Seattle, I mean, you have Lauren Jackson, Subert, of course, you're going to be shooting some threes, right? But if like more normal personnel, like on, on Sacramento, it's some antiquated offense, but 
still an amazing game. Uh, Monarchs end up winning in overtime, 74 to 72, literally at the buzzer. Like there is, there is no final gasp for the storm. What kind of stood out to you from the box score? Like if you're just kind of, kind of going to kind of take a step back here, what stood out to you? I mean, the 13 total three-point attempts for Seattle, Lauren Jackson and Sue Bird combined for 10 and the rest of the team had three uh, and they went 0 for 3 in those attempts. That, yeah. That's got to be one for sure. You know, the, the offensive rebounds, just Lauren Jackson and Rebecca Brunson specifically, uh, you know, keeping things alive for their respective teams. Jackson had some huge ones down the stretch. So, you know, nobody for Seattle was in necessarily foul trouble, but a lot of players with three fouls. Jamel, Janelle Burst had four fouls. Um, Simone Edwards played, you know, less than nine minutes, had a couple fouls. So, so that was kind of, you know, I think it was mostly their – some tough fouls by their bench that got them into the bonus in that second half and kind of allowed some easy ones for Sacramento to come back. But, you know, Kara Lawson coming off the bench playing 30 minutes over the starter Edna Campbell's 20 minutes. Uh, that, that definitely stuck out to me for sure. Anything else for you? Well, for me, it was <laughs> three for eight from three for Sacramento. I mean, these two teams, they combined to shoot, what was this? Nine for nine for 21 from three. That's like three quarters for one WNBA team today. I mean, the shot profile is just so different. Um, and also the assist to turnover ratio was not great for either team. 17 to 16 for Seattle and uh, 13 for 12 for Sacramento, which having, uh, I mean, Penichero had nine of those 13. Not, uh, of course, it's harder to get assists when you're not making shots, but. But also there were just like a, a ton of turnovers given mm-hmm. the amount of possessions there were in the game. It was a pretty yeah. low possession game and, and each team had, you know, close to 15 or, or more turnovers. Uh, a lot of them live, a lot of them also just kind of getting thrown out of bounds, you know, particularly for Seattle and, and stuff like that. So there were definitely some ugly stretches of this game where, you know, I think there was, you know, kind of one stretch in each half where it was just kind of like turnover after turnover. Yeah, and, yeah, I know what uh, you're talking about. And things kind of just got bogged down a little bit. And But yeah, other than that, this was a really fun game to watch. Um, you know, Betty Lennox, uh, as you had mentioned, who Seattle had acquired in the dispersal draft, didn't really come in to the close out the fourth quarter up until, you know, Tully Bevilacqua had just like a terrible turnover uh, to give Sacramento a transition opportunity. There was like two and a half minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. And that was interesting. And, and Lennox was uh, riding the bench for a while before that. Um, but, you know, she, she got her uh, redemption and ended up winning finals MVP in this season. So. Yeah, I mean, this this was just an awesome one to, to watch. Lauren Jackson was, was amazing. To kind of see what Tangela Smith was at the height of her powers was, was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing Rebecca Brunson, you know, not in a uh, a Lynx uniform, I know isn't too weird for some, but, <laughs> but for me, it was definitely a, a sight to see. Yolanda Griffith, not probably her most involved game, but but defensively, she was definitely a force. And uh, she obviously made some some huge plays for, for Sacramento. So this was a, a good one. A good one. And uh good piece of basketball history you know i mean the, the game is the game is so much different these days but uh it's it's cool to see how how things were, once were and how thing compared to how things are going now yeah i mean it's it's really one nice. other thing uh one other thing i want to say i uh, didn't realize before watching this game that ann donovan was six eight um she was very tall yes yeah anything else on on this game before we kind of get out of here it, it was it was definitely fun it's it's out there if anybody wants to watch it um definitely recommend it uh I would say the the video quality was maybe a little bit worse than yeah. <laughs> the 2009 game that we had watched uh, over the summertime, but 
yeah, the, the WNBA on Oxygen uh, and the uh, video available uh, commercials and all. So uh, I did I did enjoy uh, seeing what constituted a a good computer in two thousand four. Um, <laughs> but let me tell you, light beer commercials have not changed a single bit. No, then. that that's funny. I was thinking <laughs> the same thing. Like this definitely could be a Budweiser commercial or a Bud Light commercial from from today. Still so cringy. All right, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we really appreciate it. If you want to give us a follow on uh, the Apple Store, on Google Pot, or Google Play, sorry, on Spotify, we are there. If you want to give us a uh, nice rating or a nice review, nice subscription, nice follow on Twitter at Double Down WNBA or our personal accounts at Nemchak E or at Trinkwald. Stephen, anything else for the people? Thank you for listening. Have a, uh, if, we, if we don't catch up again for whatever reason, have a uh, safe and healthy holiday season. Hang in there, folks. Stay warm.